Good morning, faith family. Amen. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. We are in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, and I get to call up another friend, Hannah Testerman. Uh, isn't the summer a great time to try new things? What are some of the things you like to try in the summer? Sports. Sports. Water skiing? That's always a great thing to try in the summer. <laughs> Absolutely here. Anybody else trying new things? And uh, Dave, would you mind helping Hannah get this uh, sketch board up on the stage? That would be helpful. Anybody else? Things that you like to try in the summer? Gardening? Yes, Andrew. Swimming? Okay. Roasting marshmallows? Right? That's always a good thing to try. Campfires, all those things. Camping for the first time. Road trips for the first time. All these things we like to try. And sometimes when it comes to your spiritual life, there are many of us that are the type of person that just likes to read our Bible in the morning in that one chair at that exact time with the exact same study in the exact same way. Now that's just who we are. And if that chair wasn't there and the coffee wasn't there and we didn't have our notepad, it would almost be hard to meet with God because we are just used to that routine. Others of us, though, love creativity. Uh, we, we love change. We love reading a new book. Maybe some of you even have spouses that would tease you over having started nine different devotionals, not to finish seeing any of them, okay? There are some that are like that, that like the different creativity. Well, I'm a person that loves pictures. I, I like to think in pictures. I think in symbols. And uh, just for this summer, we're going to try something. It works great with Kid Sunday, but you guys know we have an evangelist, Richard and Diane Burley, living across the street. They are doing sketchboard training. But one of the things I thought of was, what if some of you take sermon notes, and you don't take sermon notes with the script that we provide out back? Some of you are underlined, some of you are word people, some of you like to read the sermon before the church starts just to know where I'm going. That's who you are. Others of you are like, Josh, you could delete the words. If you could just give me a symbol to take home with your words, that would be helpful. So we want to give you the freedom today, and maybe through the rest of the summer, if we can make this work, to think not only if you are someone here who is more, you know, linear, who is more uh, following Paul's, you know, logic in Romans, but if you're more of a picture person, Hannah is going to try to basically take sermon notes through symbols and painting while we preach. Some of you are going to say, that's a distraction. I can't handle this. Um, can I just keep my nose in the Bible and not look up? Okay, you have permission to keep your head down for the entire service. Uh, others of you uh, need the permission to say, you know what, you're right. I, I, I could really get in that. So the kids are in the service. It's something that we wanted to try just for them. So Hannah's going to do that as we go, and I think it will help you. Just meeting with her this week has been a blessing for me to think through my sermon, almost to the point where I think I could get rid of my notes and just preach by thinking through the four quadrants that she's going to paint, all right? But I'm not quite there yet, uh, but man, it was a great exercise for me. So if you are new to our faith family, I'm Pastor Josh, been here 12 years. This is second week of going through our Acts sermon series called Sent, uh, but we have not actually gotten to the book of Acts yet. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But we are trying to lay a foundation, and to lay a foundation of evangelism, that the foundation of evangelism should be the glory of God and our identity in Christ. Okay, so the foundation for our evangelism, for living a sent life, is the glory of God and our identity in Christ. And that is so important so that we do not reduce evangelism to a technique or a method. 
You guys got me? Most of us approach evangelism, we think, teach me the technique, show me the method that I'm supposed to use. But church, when we bypass the glory of God, and we bypass who we are in Christ, and we go straight to techniques, how to do it, here's what happens. Your motivation to doing evangelistic work outside of these walls is often birthed in the soil of guilt. You hear a sermon from a pastor, and you immediately begin to feel defensive because you have not been evangelizing enough. And so you get worked up in the sermon, you feel conviction, you get wound tight, and you're going to say, I'm going to do it different this time. I'm going to go for it. And so you leave the church building, perhaps motivated by guilt, perhaps wanting to gain the approval of the pastor. You go into the world with little sensitivities to your surroundings, ready to blurt out a memorized, nonstop, evangelistic monologue without taking a breath to your first unsuspecting suspect. <laughs> that person hears all of that monologue, feels offended that you treated them as your evangelistic project and not a person, but you walk away going, well, you know, at least I did it. You know, Christians are supposed to do tough things. I just did a tough thing. I hope that guilt doesn't come to the surface until next Christmas or Easter where the pastor will have the audacity to ask me to invite a friend. Sound familiar? Most of us feel that way when we hear sermons on evangelism. And so our application from last week, if you missed it and it wasn't recorded, was this. We need to learn to need people less for ourselves and to love people more for the glory of God. We need to need people less for ourselves, how they make us feel accepted, approved, good, competent. And we need to love people more for the glory of God by fearing God and not people. So we started our sermon series of evangelism looking at Isaiah 6, fearing God, not people. Because all of us have a tendency as humans to put ourselves in the center. And when we put ourselves in the center of our universe, fear creeps in. There is disobedience. But when we put God in the center, we have courage, faith, obedience, to be on mission, to evangelize, because we know that God's mission is God's business from start to finish. God's business is mission. And so with God in the right spot, that's what we've been trying to do for years here. Put God in the right spot. Get a big picture of God. Keep him in the right spot. Know who you are. And then you can be able to know what to do, how to do it, and why you are to do it. So Mason did a great job of reading Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And we're going to see who we are, how we are supposed to evangelize, and why we are supposed to evangelize based upon Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Hear God's word again. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand that gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray that these truths can be put in our hearts and set us free to be used by God. God, you tell us, blessed are those not who trust in their own wisdom. You say, blessed are those uh, not who rely upon their own strength. You don't say, blessed are those who have the best plan or the strategy. I just say, blessed are those who don't walk uh, in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or, or sit in the seat of the mockers, but the one who you bless is the one who delights in your word. Father, we don't delight in your word as we should. We don't wake up as a deer pants for the word, uh, or as for the water, as we should pant for your word. We confess that. We thank you that you're a gracious God that allows us to learn again and again, remember week after week, where else can we go for words of eternal life? God, we pray that you would bless our church as real Christians delight in your word and meditate on it day and night. We pray that our leaf of witness will not wither, but would prosper and would bring forth its fruit in season. We thank you for this summer season of one church service, one time together, with new things like children reading the scripture this morning or or Hannah uh, illustrating it through painting. God, truly, your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for great is your faithfulness. And we ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, why don't we evangelize? Because we have forgotten who we are, uh, how to do it, and why we are to do it. First, what we are. In Ephesians 5, 13, did you know that in the Greek sentence that it begins with the emphatic pronoun you, you, for emphasis. It is really saying here in Matthew 5, 13 that you are the only salt of the earth. So turn to your neighbor, kids in the sanctuary, turn to your neighbor and say, you're it. Yeah, you're it. Don't do it with such negative tone, like, ugh. <laughs> you're it. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. This is also not tag, like, you're it. Okay. And then we run across the sanctuary. Okay. That would be fun. Okay. But really, I think the point of God's word here, and you could put it in your Bible, a little arrow pointing down in, it should say, you are, you put the word only. You are the only salt of the earth. So Christ wants you to know. You're the only salt of the earth. You are the only light of the world. And yes, this is a passage that is to be an exhortation. But before it is a passage about exhortation, friends, this is a passage of encouragement. This is what Jesus thinks of you when the world thinks that you're dispensable. The world thinks we don't need Christians. What keeps our country divided is not only politics, but religion. If we could just do away with that and we could have more Unitarian Universalists, the world would be a better place. But the Lord says, in light of that common modern-day thought, let me tell you what I think of you. I think that without you, the world would cease to exist. Like Noah, you are the preservative that keeps the judgment of God from coming upon this world immediately. The world thinks nothing of you, but I, your Savior, who have adopted you by grace, who calls you his heavenly Father in this passage, what I think of you is that you 
are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is what I think he's saying. Notice that Jesus does not say, you should be the salt of the earth. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, why aren't you being more like the salt of the earth? What does he say? What does Jesus think of you, church? You are. Jesus is not encouraging you to be something that you are not. He is encouraging you to be and to remember what you are. And it is out of our identity in Christ that we begin to learn how to engage the world. What is the church's relationship with the world? Well, first, remember who you are in Christ. What does he think of you? You are the salt of the earth. Second, how are we to be the salt of the earth in the light of the world? If you read any of the commentaries, they all note that salt was known for doing many things. Salt could preserve, it could clean, it could enhance taste. Figuring out which one is not really the point. Because I believe that no matter which one you choose, they all have two things, I believe, that what Jesus meant to be included in his sentence, you are the salt of the earth. The point is that salt does these things precisely for two reasons. If you're a note taker, or upon is illustrating it, the first one here is, what does salt do in order to be effective? It has to make contact. That's the first one. Salt has to make contact. Salt in a salt shaker does no good, right? Salt has to make contact. God intended for every single one of us to penetrate the world. You see, God didn't say, you are salt, period. You are light, period. What does it say? You are the salt of the earth. That matters. You are the light of the world. It has to make contact. You are to influence the decaying world around you. You are salt, church, for the sake of the decaying world. You know what that means? You really can't wash your hands completely of this world and throw your hands up and say, I hate this world. I want to have nothing to do with it. Don't misunderstand me. We're going to clarify the other function of salt, okay? Yes, you are to be distinct from the world. And yes, you can hate the world's philosophy. You can disagree with it, dismantle it, show where it's wrong. But you must penetrate the world just as Christ penetrated the world because John 17, 18 says what? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. How'd the Father send the Son into the world? How'd the Father send the Son into the world? Essentially, Jesus became one of us. John 1, 14 says the word became flesh. God became human. The implications of that doctrinal truth are vast, but it means at least one thing for us evangelistically. It means this. God did not send a telegram. God did not shower evangelistic booklets down from heaven, nor did he drop a million bumper stickers that say, smile, Jesus loves you. He sent a man, he sent his son, to communicate his message. In church, his strategy has not changed. Next week when we get to Acts, 
Acts 1.1 says, all that Jesus began to do. It's a great phrase. Because you know what the rest of the book of Acts is all about? How Jesus' work continues, but now through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the church. Jesus began, but he continues. And so God still sends men and women, boys and girls, before he sends tracks or techniques to change the world. So what does that practically mean for you? So what? We're not to shoot the gospel from a safe distance. To remain at a respectable distance and to remain detached from the world. We need as a church to actually open up our lives for the world to be able to see that we too laugh, that we too hurt, that we too cry, so that we can share the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what Laura and I are going to do. I had this epiphany as I was driving across the country. Some of you know that we had a small kitchen house fire. We were out of our house for three months. I don't want you to think the whole place burned down. There's people that have had it much worse than us. But all of our neighbors actually know about this house fire. In fact, it was our neighbors that called the police. And in fact, it was the neighbors that actually called us that said, uh, we're at the bus stop where your house is, and there's smoke coming out of your front door. I think wherever you are, you should get home. We were at Waterville Valley. We thought this would be a good time to take off our ski clothes and to get home. Okay, And so we did. Here's what I think we're going to do. We're going to put a sign in our front yard. It's a corner house. Bus stop is there. Stephen and Nice live there. They're going to love this sign. Yard of the month, tacky sign. Here it is. You ready for it? We had a fire. We are okay. Come celebrate with us. You know what I want to do? I want to have our front yard turn into a big old picnic. And I want to be able to sit with my neighbors who we've built a relationship with. And I want to invite real Christians from church to be there. Because you know what we have to answer? Josh, I thought that you like worked for God. How could God allow this to happen to you and your family? And as soon as we open up and say that we hurt too, as soon as you say we have cancer, or as soon as you say we had a house fire, guess what everybody else in the neighborhood says too? Did you know that my mom went through that? Did you know that my neighbor went through that? And people begin to what? Open up and express their hurts, and I want other mature, real Christians that are going to be there with the neighbors that we have leveraged for years for you to take them aside and to talk to them from a gospel perspective. So if you want to come and be a part of our picnic and to have those conversations with my neighbors, that's what we're going to do. And I just share that with you as one way to get you creative. Jesus made us human in order to have points of contact with the world, which means this, church, let this blow your mind. It is not necessarily more spiritual to invite your unbelieving friends to a Bible study or to church as it could be just as spiritual to invite them over for pizza and a game night so they can see your way of life, so you can begin to explain why you do what you do. Invite them to a Bible study. Invite them to church. But the gospel also comes with a house key. Invite them into your own home. Sit. Watch. If you do family worship, and it's 7 o'clock, and you're having them over for a meal, just say, hey, guys, we're going to pull out our Bibles. We have one for you. We do this every night. Just join us. Try it. Make contact with the world. Jesus is reaching out to everyone that you are reaching out to. Did you know that? Jesus is reaching out to everyone you are because he's speaking through everything that you do. So the question you have to ask in your small groups this week is, how can we relate to people in a way that will change the world? And Jesus' first answer is, you have to have contact. 
You have to be able to identify with their hurts, their pains, and their joys. And how I know this church, you definitely have tons of points of contact. Thank you for opening up your life for me to see it, and I know that you'll do a great job. And my encouragement is, this summer, don't be a rabbit hole Christian. Don't go running from church gathering to Bible study to small group to other church gathering to only hang out with church friends to basically live your life in this world, jumping from rabbit hole to rabbit hole to rabbit hole to avoid the world. Make contact. If you don't have time to be the aroma of Christ to unbelieving neighbors, co-workers, or relatives, you are not taking the Great Commission seriously enough. So, Hannah, could you draw a tic-tac-toe grid? That wasn't in the notes. But you know what? I'm pretty sure she can do that. I hope you will never look at a tic-tac-toe grid the same again. Tic-tac-toe grid. In 2010, Pew Research looked at 2,200 adults and interviewed them about their community. Some 28% did not even know one neighbor. Only 19% so they knew all their neighbors. So now in the tic-tac-toe grid that we know, I want you to put you in the middle of that tic-tac-toe grid. This can be your house. This can be your cubicle at work. Students, this could be your desk at school. This could be your position on the football team. Now you have eight spots all around you. Is that right? She can count. I can't. All right, so there's eight. And just begin to say, can I fill those in? Can I fill in those neighbors? Do I know they're real hurts? Do they know that, that they're my friend, even though they also might be my evangelistic project? Put that on your refrigerator. Put it in your binders. This can be your next step. The person that is a Christian loves his neighbor and the gospel comes with a house key. You've got to make contact. Second, salt works because it is different. Not only because it's contact, but it's different. There's something about salt that makes it different from the thing on which it is sprinkled. Or else, if you sprinkle broccoli bits on top of broccoli, you haven't accomplished anything more than what? Broccoli. And who wants more broccoli bits on top of their Broccoli. Not my kids. Okay, well, Hudson, maybe. All right, there he is. Thank you for waving your hand in the air there. All right. Salt is useful, Jesus is saying, exactly because it's salty. It's different. And Jesus is saying in the first part, you can't be isolated from unbelievers, but he says that you also must not be identical to unbelievers. You can't be isolated from unbelievers, but you also can't be identical to believers. Yes, Jesus dined with sinners, but Jesus did not sin with sinners. Yes, Jesus lived in the world, but he did not live like the world. He was different. A Christian's saltiness is dependent upon his Christian character. So the only way that we can be an effective witness is that the Christian retains his or her Christ-likeness. Robert Murray McShane, a great Southern preacher in the 1850s, died at the age of 29 by burning himself out, and he wrote this at the age of 27 to a dear friend who was going into the ministry. This is what he said. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his sword clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest of care. Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talent that God blesses, nearly so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy Christian is an awful weapon in the hand of God. What's he saying? We all know this. There must be a connection between what we believe and how we behave. 
if we don't live up to our testimony, then our testimony will ring hollow and our evangelism will ultimately be ineffective. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers in Scotland, says the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. So Francis Chan had an illustration in which he takes the salt packet, stopped by the beanstalk on the way here this morning, and said, do you have any salt packets? They said, sure. So they hooked me up with one. And this is, this is the real thing. Okay, this, is, this is real salt. The real thing, right here, okay? And imagine, let me ask you a question, imagine that this is all the salt that you have. Just that little bit. Would you want, thank you, Janelle, to take white flakes? We can call it danger if you can call it whatever you want, all right? But just not the real thing, okay? You're going to take this. Would you want to take your little bit of real stuff, and would you want to do that to it? No. The only reason why you would want to do that is if you're a church and you want to say, my pile is bigger than your pile. Our church has, you know, more, more of the, it's a, it's a mixture, right? And Christ is trying to say, those that really want to follow me, those that really want to count the cost and be my disciples and be a witness, we want the real stuff, but there's a lot of churches, right, that just want to say, look at how big our pile is. I, I, I thought about maybe getting some sprinkles and saying, look at how colorful our church is, and look at how exciting it is. But the real point of salt is that it has to be different in order to make a difference. If it's just a big pile, I think the question would be, pile of what exactly? Luke says it's not even good for manure. The manure that you're putting this fake white stuff on is actually ruining my manure. My manure is better if you don't add the white flakes to it. It's a pretty, read the you know, red letters of Jesus, it's pretty hard, right? Now, how are we like the world, church? I think we're like the world in our marketing. I think that we are like the world in our celebrity worship. We believe that our greatest evangelists, our greatest defenders of the faith, are successful CEOs or professional athletes. How many of you have ever had the thought, that if that guy or that lady or that celebrity or that musician came to Christ, oh, what would the impact be? Then they would listen. If Tim Tebow would speak at that place, right? What happens on Father's Day? The whole place is packed. What's wrong with that message? Church, you got to be sharp thinkers. What does that do to the gospel? It does two things to the gospel. First, it says the gospel is all about temporary blessings. You know, if you accept Jesus, then you can look at this successful guy. He's been successful as a businessman. He's been successful as an athlete. Look at this musician, and he's a Christian. You know what you're going to have when you become a Christian? Temporal blessings just like them. It's not said, but just because we believe and we hope 
that if we can get that guy to speak or that female to sing or to share or to challenge, that then conversions will ultimately happen. It's not God's divine giving birth to people. It's through that person. If we just had that, well, you begin to think all these people become Christians because they want to have that same kind of lifestyle. Then all of a sudden you go out there in the world and Jesus says, we're a battleship, not a cruise ship. And you come back to your pastor and say, hey, I'm getting shot at here out in the world. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you think you were on vacation? What are you signing up to? The second thing that it does to the gospel when we believe that our best evangelists or, de or defenders of the faith are CEOs or professional athletes, it also sends the message to all of us. Ordinary people don't apply. Ordinary people don't apply. Let's leave this to the people that can pack out a stadium. Let's leave this to those that can talk on the radio. You know what? They can do it for you. D don't build a bridge with your neighbor. Don't show the gospel at your kitchen table. No, bring them to the place where the guy that has a PhD can share. But you know what I love about this church? From its beginning. I actually interviewed for this church before I actually got interviewed and, and applied and, and got accepted. And Denise and Steve LeClaire says, Josh, this is a training church. We have always been a training church. We take risks on people the world might overlook, but we will let you learn here. We will tolerate your mistakes. We'll be with you as long as you can learn eventually. We'll nurture you because we believe in training people. Well, at that time, the church was going through a tough thing, and they said, you're not the right person. Then Jeff came along. I applied with him, and he trained me. And the motto of this church has been the one thing the pastors can do that actually makes us, should stay here, is that we can equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's why we're here. That is what brings me joy in the week, is seeing people like Ben Menard preach. Seeing people say, I'll take a six-week Sunday school class and try co-teaching with you, Josh, or somebody else. There are all these little steps of faith from little kids. This is our first time doing that, I think. Little kids reading the Bible, calling up, asking their moms and dads, could you equip them to read this week and come up here? And they did a great job, didn't they? Let them hear it, church. All right? Meeting with Hannah, meeting with Holly, the interns we've had throughout the years, it's about equipping the church. So you have to ask yourself this morning, do I identify enough? Question one, do I welcome people? Am I a member of the holy huddle, the local God squad? Or do I hang around people of various beliefs? Do I love the unlovely? Or you also have to ask yourself the other question, am I different enough? Am I Christ-like? Do I bring this aspect of Christ's holiness, of his moral standards, the fruit of the Spirit into my relationships? Or out of my sincere desire to identify and to love, have I become culture accommodating? Friends, what way have you been influenced by the world? We've all have been. Just where? Jesus concludes with probably the most important part. We'll wrap it up. Why are we to be the salt of the earth? Hannah, if you want to make a big why, go for it. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. Jesus concludes by answering the question, what's the point? Why do good works? The purpose? The glory of God. Some of you might be here as unbelievers, and you say, Josh, I know unbelievers that do better good works than Christians do. True. They're made in God's image, they might. But their motivation and their goal is completely different than a Christian's motivation and a Christian's goal. An unbeliever might do it to feel better about themselves. An unbeliever might do it to distract themselves from the purposelessness of life without God. They might. But a believer in a church does good works. Why? Because of who you are. But the gospel message is this, that when you become a Christ follower, you are welcomed by grace. You become a son or a daughter adopted by grace, and now you have a heavenly father who makes you the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And the reason why, and Honoré said it so well, the reason why I do good works is so that others would love God. That's our motivation, and that is our goal. And if you get the order wrong, you will be like me, which is a performance junkie. And you, especially with our kids in the sanctuary, hearing a pastor talk about good works, they might think, I'm going to do my good works to please God. And friends, it is a gospel of grace. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But God, who is rich in mercy, called you to himself, and now he makes you his workmanship, what? Unto good works. Know who you are how to do it, but ultimately what changes this from every other walk of life is why we do it. We want other people to come in and to be a part of our faith family. God welcomes us to a table, a table that he has provided, a table that it costs him to furnish, a table that he opens for any and all to receive. And Christ looks out at the field and he says, white unto the harvest, but the laborers are few. I really believe the world is filled with lost men and women, boys and girls, who can't find their way home to the Father's house because the wheat of this world has risen so high that they can't see home. And they need us walking through, linking arms as a church, a corporate witness, going through the field saying, come to my Father's house. So church, when you think about bashing the church, or you think about throwing some rotten tomatoes at the church, realize it's not an organization that you are bashing, realizing that it is an organism of real people like me and you who are sent as God's missionaries into the world to say, would you love Christ? And how will the world ever love the church if you don't love the church? Our closing hymn. It's a new song as well. I know you'll love it. To God be the glory. It has those lines in it, and I think you'll be encouraged to think about not just yourself, but God's glory. Let's stand and sing. This is a new song, but it's not a new song, because you know this song. You don't know the words, but the tune...